You are listening to a podcast of the West Pines Community Church Good Friday Service. For more information about West Pines, visit our website at www.westpines.org. Papa, kulit kehu, hengahel. It was Thursday evening, and Jesus and his twelve disciples had been sitting around the Passover meal. And they leave Passover and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And Jesus goes off a little ways and Peter, James, and John are are watching him and he begins to pray. But the way he prays has to be a way they've never seen anyone pray like this before. He's in utter anguish and agony. One of them wrote down that they saw that he was sweating, but... The sweat droplets were like drops of blood, which is actually a medical condition called hematidrosis, which is a a point in time when someone's under such unimaginable stress that the blood capillaries around their sweat glands burst and blood runs through their sweat glands and down their face. It's reported that criminals before they're executed have at times been under that level of stress. Peter, James, and John may never have seen anyone in this amount of mental, emotional, and spiritual turmoil ever, and they certainly hadn't seen this man, the man who'd healed the sick, raised the dead back to life, the one who calmed storms, walked on water. This man was sweating drops of blood. He was under so much anguish. And they watched as he, they remember one part of his prayer, and it's, it's been recorded down, from us in, in, down for us in the Bible, and it's become kind of well-known, but it's a really interesting phrase. Jesus is calling out to God, and he says, Father, you can do anything. Can you let this cup pass from me? What an odd phrase. What does he mean? What does he mean cup? What's this cup? What does he want? What does he not want anymore? What does he want taken away? What does he not want to have to deal with? What does he not want to have to experience? What is he talking about? What's this cup? What's this chalice that he wants to pass from him? See, the the cup imagery throughout the Hebrew Old Testament and into the New Testament, the cup imagery is, is very significant. The cup imagery we see all through the Bible represents something uh, unimaginable. It represents the wrath, the anger, the punishment from Almighty God. I want you to think about the surface of the sun. And I want you to imagine how close you could get to it before it incinerated you or any other human. It wouldn't be very close. We couldn't get very close to the sun. Now I want you to imagine that they estimate that in every single galaxy, they they estimate there might be a hundred billion stars, many much larger than the sun. 
Then I want you to imagine that they, they estimate in the observable universe, they estimate there's something like 10 billion universe, uni, uh, galaxies in the universe. So I want you to imagine all of those stars, all of those furious burning stars that would overwhelm any one of us. And I want you to imagine that there's a single being that spoke them into existence. The psalm says he, he speaks them out of his mouth. We're talking about that being's almighty God. We're talking about his wrath. In fact, some of the most terrifying verses in Scripture are related to the cup of wrath. Let me read you a few of, this, a few of these. Jeremiah 25 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Psalm 75 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Zechariah 12 says, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. And in Revelation 14 he says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Some of the most terrifying verses in Scripture are in reference to this cup of wrath, this unimaginable, overwhelming fury. And the Bible says it's for the wicked. Well, who could possibly deserve something that terrible? I mean, is it the most notorious criminals in history, the, the worst leaders, criminal leaders we've ever seen? I mean, who deserves that kind of wrath? Well, what the Bible says is the wicked is anyone who falls short of the glory of God. In other words, anyone who's not perfectly holy like God is. The wicked, that means every single one of us. And that means every single one of us deserves the wrath of God. But that night Jesus said something in the garden. He said, let this cup pass from me. Because he was preparing to drink single-handedly the cup of God's wrath. And he looked submissively to God and said, not my will be done, but your will be done. This imagery of the cup is woven throughout the whole story of Jesus' suffering. And the first appearance, there's actually three appearances of this cup that we see throughout the story. And the first occurrence, the first appearance of this cup actually happens a few hours before he's praying that agonizing prayer in the garden. A few hours before before that, when they're sitting around at the Passover meal, when he talks about the cup, it might have looked something like this. Rabata, Rabata, Nash, 
The first time the cup appears in the story of Jesus' suffering is at this Passover meal. And at Passover, each one of these 12 disciples and Jesus had experienced this feast every year of their life, lives. They would have been very familiar with its formula. It's the same stories they talk about every year. It's the same verses they read. It's the same songs that they sing. It's very predictable, and it's actually, you could break it down into four movements, this Passover feast, that's each represented by a different cup of wine. But at one of the cups of wine, Jesus picks it up and he changes the predictable formula. He changes it and he says this. It's in Mark 14. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He picks up one of the cups during the meal and he says, he says something different about it. He changes the predictable formula of the Passover meal and he says, this cup, this is a symbol of my blood which is poured out and it's poured out for many. What's interesting is that in some of the other gospel accounts, we actually know which of the four cups it was. They said that it was the cup after dinner that he picked up, which we know the first two cups happened before the meal. They, each cup has its own significance, certain things that they, they sing or pray or recite over it, and then they have the meal, and then it's the third cup that's the cup after dinner. It's the third cup that he picks up. It's the cup that's often known as the cup of redemption. It's when they remember that God bought them out of slavery. Well, what does redemption mean? That means that God purchased them at great cost to himself. It's this cup of redemption where they remember that they are redeemed people. It's over this third cup, the cup of redemption, that they pray and remind themselves that God provides for the entire world. It's significant Jesus picks up this third cup in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, and says, this is symbolic of my blood. His blood will be our redemption. 
and it will be for many throughout the entire world. The first cup that we see in the story of Jesus' suffering, in the the story of his passion, the first cup is the cup of redemption. But there are other cups in the story. The second cup comes the next day. Later that night, they finish the Passover feast, and of course, they go in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're praying together. Jesus is in agony, and their prayers get interrupted by a group of soldiers that come marching through. They arrest Jesus. They start having trials in the middle of the night. They bring false witnesses against him. And there's a momentum that's building through the night throughout Jerusalem. Jerusalem is swollen with people there to celebrate Passover. And there's a momentum that's building through the night. Crowds are gathering around. They want Jesus dead. And by the next morning, an entire crowd has appeared before the local ruler, Pilate, and they're demanding that Jesus be crucified. Pilate washes his hands of the situation, turns Jesus over to his soldiers. And the Roman guard, they gather around, they take Jesus, they gather around, they're instructed to scourge him, to whip him. First, they, they beat him with rods. They take rods and they beat him about his back, around his body. Think of like a caning. And then they scourge him. It's a certain type of whipping. It's not just a lash. It's designed to rip the flesh away from your body. And they whip him over and over and over and over. Scholars believe he would have already been in physical shock at this point from the trauma to his body and the loss of blood. And then the Roman soldiers, before they're going to crucify him, then they do something that they weren't commanded to do. They just did on their own. They all gather around him and they start to beat him. They punch him. They spit on him. And they mock him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they bow down pretending he's a king. And then they, they drag him out and they take him, they put the cross that he's going to be nailed to, they put it on his shoulders and they parade him through the city up to Mount Golgotha. And before they take spikes and before they lay him on the cross and drive, drive spikes through his hands and drive spikes through his feet, through the bones of his feet to fix him onto the cross, there's a strange detail that we learn that they do right when they get to the mountain. And it's in Mark chapter 15. Let me read this to you. It says this, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is a very strange detail here. It says they just finished beating him, whipping him. He's already in physical shock, loss of blood. He probably wouldn't survive already the beating that he had received. They take him. They're just about to nail him to the cross, but they stop and they offer him wine. What is with this odd detail? Why do they offer him wine? It's not just any wine. It's wine that's mixed with myrrh. It's expensive wine. It's luxurious wine. What's this detail about? Well, to understand this detail, we have to understand a very important part of Roman culture. Every culture, almost every culture, has a different type of celebratory parade. In our culture, there's an inaugural parade. Almost every president has had a parade as they've, as they've been sworn in and they're heading to the White House. There's a parade. 
championship teams, if they win a championship, they go back to their hometown and, and there's ticker tape floating down through the wind. The whole city empties out and they're cheering them on and remembering all the things that they did. They're heroes, the champions. Well, the Romans had a parade. It was called the Roman Triumph, and it's probably the most incredible parade in history. There were hundreds of them throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the years. And it was reserved for a general that had just won a war. The Senate actually had to approve, the Roman Senate had to approve this parade, and here's what it would look like. It was to honor this general who was called during that triumph, called the Triumphator. And how it would work is the general would come in and he would get his entire battalion of men and he would gather them there in the morning. And the first thing that would happen is they would be heaping praises on him, remembering his exploits and honoring his leadership. And he would pass out gifts to them for all the things that they had done, some of the spoils, they would pass out these gifts to them. And then they would take a purple robe and they would place it around this general. They would find, they would take a gold crown out of laurels They would take that wreath and they would place it on his head to honor him. They would paint his face. Sometimes they'd paint it red to honor him. And then the parade would begin. This parade would first start. They'd bring in all the spoils from this far-off land that was conquered. If there was exotic animals, there'd be exotic animals. If there were exotic plants, they'd bring them in. They'd show all the spoils. They'd bring plaques declaring who this triumphator, this general was. There would be all the captured enemy prisoners would be be traipsed through on the parade with jeering from the crowds. There'd be a bull that was being prepared to be sacrificed. It would go through. And then the triumphator, the general, would appear. And he would go through this crowd to this unbelievable swell of cheering, honoring him almost to godlike proportions. To the point there was a legend that a slave would stand on this chariot taking this man into the city to the Roman capital. There would be a slave, as the multitudes were praising him, a slave would stand behind him and he would hold the golden crown over his head and he'd whisper in his ear, remember thou art just a man. He would get to the capital, he would ruthlessly slay all the enemy captives and then he would sacrifice The bull. Now, what does all this have to do with Jesus? Well, to really get this picture, I want you to see in 1951 a movie depicted what a Roman triumph would would look like. Check this out. incredible spectacle, a Roman triumph. And to understand how this ties into this second, the second cup of wine, I want to back up a couple verses and read to you the story of what happened in Mark 15 before they offered him this wine. Let me remind you what happened. 
And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to be crucified. See, what's taking place here? What's this whole, what's this whole business happening? Well, it's a, it's a mock triumph. It's an anti-triumph. They first start with bringing the whole battalion. Why would an entire battalion of Roman soldiers come to beat up one prisoner? They bring the whole battalion in. And they start, instead of heaping praises on him, they heap mock, mockery on him. Instead of the triumphador handing out gifts, they're punching him and beating him. They take a purple robe and then mockery, they put it around his shoulders. And instead of putting together and twisting together a wreath of laurels, they twist together a crown of thorns. And they place it on his head. Instead of his face being painted red, it's stained red with blood. And then they parade him, not into the city in honor, they parade him out of the city like a criminal. They're carrying the placard, a mock placard, calling him the king of the Jews. And they bring him up to the cross. Now what happened? What's with this offering of wine? Well, often in a Roman triumph, at the moment when he was about to, the bull was about to be sacrificed, they'd offer the triumphator a cup of wine. And the tradition was this Roman general, instead of drinking it, he would pour it out as a sacrifice to the gods. So as part of this mock anti-triumph, they're dragging Jesus up to Golgotha and they hand him this cup and he refuses it. And it's like it's being poured out as a sacrifice. This glory of Jesus, the glorious parade of Jesus, was a humiliation. But when he got to the, the mountain, did he execute his enemies? He forgave them. What's startling about this picture is the tradition of standing behind a Roman general saying, remember thou art only a man. The incredible irony is Jesus being paraded with this cross out of Jerusalem is the only time in history there's been a parade for someone who was not merely a man, but was God in the flesh. The second cup is a cup of triumph. What did the triumph of Jesus look like? It may have looked something like this.
There's a third cup of wine. It appears after Jesus has been crucified. It says this in Mark chapter 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus, with a loud voice, cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The third cup of wine is not actually a cup. It's actually a sponge. He's on the cross. And right before he dies, they take a branch and they put a sponge on it. They put sour wine on it and they offer it up to Jesus. And what's interesting is we know from other gospels what kind of branch it was. It was a hyssop branch. It may have looked something similar to this ancient Hyssop had pure white flowers all along it, and they took a sponge, they put it on the hyssop branch, dipped it in sour wine, and offered it up to Jesus. Now, the hyssop branch is very significant. In the Old Testament, for the Jewish people, the law in the Old Testament, many of the sacrifices included placing a hyssop branch in the sacrifice. Many people who needed to be cleansed, they would go to the priest and he would dip a hyssop branch in the blood of a sacrificial animal, and he would sprinkle it on them. But there's an even more significant moment where hyssop is used. If you remember, the, the feast that they're celebrating that weekend is the Feast of Passover. And they're celebrating this moment in their history, this moment when they were enslaved in Egypt, and God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he, Pharaoh tells this, Moses tells this to Pharaoh over and over, and Pharaoh refuses to listen to God. And finally, God says, I'm going to send death into every house in Egypt. But to spare my people, I'm going to have every household sacrifice an, a lamb, a spotless lamb. They will sacrifice that lamb, and then they will take a branch, they will dip it in the blood of that sacrificial lamb, and they'll paint it over their doorposts so that every home that has blood painted over the doorposts death would pass over that home. That's how God delivered his people out of slavery. Now, what kind of branch was it specifically that God commanded them to use to paint their doorpost so many hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment when Jesus was on the cross? What kind of branch was it? It was a hyssop branch. And it's such a beautiful symbol of sacrifice because it's got pure white flowers that get stained with blood. In the same way, a sacrifice is an innocent substitute for us. It's something that's innocent that dies in our place. And in this moment on the cross, this third cup, so to speak, this third time that it appears, it's hyssop that they take, put a sponge on the end, and they offer it up to Jesus, literally pointing the hyssop branch at the sacrifice for all of eternity. The spotless pure lamb, stained with our imperfections. See, the story of Jesus' suffering is the story of this cup that keeps reappearing throughout the story and it tells this rich, rich truth that we need to hear. Every one of us deserves the wrath 
of God, the unimaginable, overwhelming wrath of Almighty God because we don't treat him like he's God in our lives. But Jesus took the wrath of God. He took that cup and drained it. What does that mean? It means that it was the cup of redemption. At great cost to himself did he purchase us out of our slavery to our sin. It's the cup of victory. That means that through his actions on the cross, he has victory over sin and death and over his enemies of evil and over our enemies. He is our victory. But his victory is in his humiliation. It's a cup of sacrifice. He's the pure, spotless, innocent one that trades places with us. And our stains go on him. It's a very simple truth. We deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus took the cup and he drained every last drop of it. Do you realize what that means? That means if there's a sin in your life that's haunting you, if there's a sin in your life that you feel like is always with you, it's always present, you feel like God is always angry at you because of this. You feel like you can never get out from under this. You you don't think that God wants to see you or talk to you. You you feel stained. You feel chained to it. You feel like you're so far from God and enslaved to it. It means that in that moment, Jesus drained it. It's completely washed away. All the punishment he took, there's nothing left for you. See, maybe tonight you're here and there's an incredible truth that you need to know, maybe for the first time. The gospel, the truth from the scripture, what God wants us to know, it's not that we're here because it's a day on the calendar and we're perpetuating a tradition, a ritual, a religion. It's not just that he wants us to be spiritual. The story of the Bible is not simply, hey, try and be good. Try and love people better. No, the whole story is one transaction where even though we deserve the wrath of God, Jesus drained it and there's nothing left for us. There's only love left for us. It's presented to you tonight. And God says, even though you deserve wrath like every one of us, Jesus took it for you. You just have to accept it. Accept that forgiveness, accept that free gift. You can tonight say once and for all, I'm going to stop trying to impress God, trying to be good enough. I'm going to realize it's not about what I do, it's about what he did. And once and for all, I'm going to step over the line and realize that Jesus died on the cross. That's the only thing that can save me. I'm going to accept that and accept that God wants to forgive me. Maybe you accept that tonight. Christian, maybe you're journeying and you still feel like your sins are chaining, chained on you. Maybe you still feel marked and stained. You realize that all of that is washed clean. Because Jesus took the cup. We're going to end tonight with communion. And communion is that symbol where we take a piece of the broken bread that symbolizes his broken body and we eat it. We take a cup of the juice that symbolizes his blood that's been poured out and we drink it. And maybe you're here tonight and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus. You're not sure what you believe about Jesus. Well, here's what I would ask. I'd ask you just to hold off. If that's where you're at, we totally respect that. But I'd ask you to hold off because taking these elements, the bread and the juice, is a proclamation that you've received Jesus as your Savior. And in a, a few minutes, 
you'll enter into the aisles here and you'll come forward and you'll take a piece of the bread and the juice and you can just drink it on the, eat it and drink it on the way back to your seat. And you're going to take, there's a, a wooden cup that you can take home with you as a memorial to remember that Jesus drained the cup that we deserved. But we're going to do something a little bit different. There are two pieces of paper on your seat when you came in. There's a piece of black paper and a piece of red paper. Now, some of you, the piece of red paper is for you, and some of you, the piece of black paper is for you. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a, uh, in a minute, we're going to take a second and just write out, there's a pen on your seat. We're going to write, take a moment of confession before God, and you're going to write out before God your sins. doesn't matter if you can see it. It's just the act of writing it between you and God, and just in a prayerful moment, just remind yourself what you've done that deserves the wrath of Almighty God. And then you'll take that piece of paper when you're done in that quiet moment of God and you'll quietly crumple it up and you're going to place it in that plastic cup that's on your chair. And it's a symbol of the, the sins and the wrath that we deserve in that cup. And what you're going to do, and you're going to, you'll come up here and you'll place that cup with a confession of your sins in it and you'll place it somewhere on this stage. It's a symbol that you're placing it at the foot of the cross maybe place it here in the middle or over off to the side and you'll place it on the stage and you'll leave the cup of wrath at the foot of the cross and you'll walk away with the symbols of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. You'll leave the cup of wrath and you'll walk away with a cup that symbolizes the sweetness of his sacrifice. Now for some of you tonight, you've known the Lord maybe for years, maybe most of your life that black piece of paper is for you. I want you to take that black piece of paper and take some moment quietly before the Lord and lay out your heart, confess your sins, remind yourself why each one of us deserve the wrath of God. But for some of you tonight, you're saying, you know what, tonight I'm gonna take that step and for the first time I realize it's not about what I do that saves me, it's what Jesus did and I'm gonna accept Jesus as my savior tonight. I'm just gonna accept that forgiveness once and for all, that Jesus died and that and that alone saves me. It's not what I do, it's what he did. And some of you are ready to say for the first time, I get it. It's not perpetuating a tradition or a heritage. It's what Jesus did. I get it tonight. And some of you, you're going to take that red piece of paper is reserved for you. For those of you who are saying for the first time tonight, I get it. And I'm making that stand. And if that's you, you're going to take this, take this moment and just confess your sins to the Lord. And then in a few minutes, we'll come forward. Take this moment now between you and God in confession.